Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Hi there everyone and welcome back to uh, the latest episode of our podcast series, Catchphrase Christianity. Uh, For those of you who are new to this, uh, we're basically doing a podcast series about how God looks like Jesus and we're basically unpacking that statement and looking at how it has so many world altering implications because it affects how we see God and therefore it affects how we behave um, and it affects how we reveal God to the world and we no longer need to guess the whole point of this podcast series is looking at how we don't need to guess any longer what God's like we don't need to guess how he's going to behave or what he's attitude or responses are to different things because we see all of who God is and everything who how God behaves revealed in Jesus so Jesus not only reveals who God is he actively connects with what we think God is like and in effect changes the narrative we've created about God so in today's podcast we're going to be exploring a little bit further about how Jesus changes the story so to start us off, I kind of just want to talk a little bit about the fact that I love films, and I especially love films that carry meaning, whether that's The Muppet's Christmas Carol and the kind of heartfelt um, story that it's never too late to change, or things like The Dark Knight and the awe-inspiring message of how someone sacrifices their own reputation for the sake of others. The, the films for me tug at my heartstrings and, and also my imagination in a way that they show us numerous variations of how good triumphs over evil and we have that inner knowing that as we watch a good film no matter how dark it gets no matter how impossible the situation may seem that ultimately good wins and for me the films where that doesn't happen where where there's not that sense of meaning or good triumphing over evil aren't worth watching um and don't get me started on the horrendousness that is the butterfly effect um but we all do want good to win and that's why we watch those kind of films why we engage with those kind of movies because why wouldn't we it's a kind of a given we want good to triumph in the end however the trouble with that idea sometimes comes from the fact that we need to identify who is good and who deserves to win and who is evil and who who deserves to be defeated. For example, like the Emperor in Star Wars deserved to be defeated. And it gets even more complicated when we have to start to consider how good wins. Is it by military might, by annihilation of the enemy or some other way that that evil needs to be eradicated and the enemy needs to be defeated? I mean, can we imagine a scenario where Iron Man doesn't do the snap and destroy Thanos and his evil army? Because Thanos had to go, didn't he? And, and the Emperor in, in Star Wars needed to be killed, I mean, twice. The Joker in Batman had to be stopped, and Voldemort, of course, had to be destroyed. Hitler obviously had to be assassinated, and Saddam Hussein had to be hung. That's the narrative that we buy into, and that's the narrative that, that we join with. But what happens when it comes to things like white supremacists, or maybe far-right parties like the BNP, or maybe even far-left ones like Lenin's Soviet Union, what happens towards our attitude when, what about pro-gun groups or pro-life ones? What happens to our attitude when it looks at LGBTQ plus supporting parties or people, or perhaps those who don't support those kind of groups? What about conservative politicians or maybe Labour ones? Come to think of it, what about that annoying neighbour who just won't shut up or that infuriating person on social media that just needs to wind their neck in? And obviously the, there's some fairly provocative thoughts there when we like start to shift at who is good and who is bad and, and which perspective we're looking at. And the whole point of doing that is is to kind of raise our thinking on that and to provoke our thought because the good guy can so often be subjective. 
Now, of course, we accept the fact that Hitler and Voldemort are not good guys. And I'm pretty sure 99.9% of the world's population would agree there. And so it's acceptable that they need to be dealt with. However, however, even if we accept that premise, not everyone and every group is that easily defined. I mean, what do we do with people like Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker and Star Wars? How, how do we place them? Where do we put them? I'm not going to pretend to have answers to all those kind of questions, but I, I do want to make room for Jesus in this podcast to show us the way and to reveal how God behaves towards the bad guy, whoever that bad guy may be, however we define that bad guy. We're going to look at how God behaves towards him. Now, we've had a pretty intense start to the podcast today, so let's have a little bit of fun. Um, I'm going to read two passages of scripture, one from Isaiah 61 and one from Luke 4. And as I'm reading them, I want you to listen carefully um, to the, the the similarities between them but also the differences in them and your job is to spot the difference have a little bit of fun and play a little bit of a spot the difference today so in Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2 it says this the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison door to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God so that's Isaiah 61 Luke 4 verse 18 and 19 where Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now it may be a bit easier for you to perhaps turn to your Bible and have a look at those in your own time. They're both taken from the New King James Version of the Bible. Both obviously share very similar words and phrases and both express God's heart to bless people but there are some differences in them if you haven't noticed them already I'm going to start to look at those now the first one is that Isaiah 61 refers to opening of the prison door for those who are bound where Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61 according to Luke 4 uses the phrase recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed those are very similar concepts except for perhaps Jesus connects between blindness and liberation of the oppressed Maybe it's a reference to some social economic prison people are, who are blind end up in or maybe even put others in. Or maybe a poetic challenge about the inability, our inability to see things clearly and not see them like he does and how this leads to our oppression with the people. Maybe, maybe it's a link into Isaiah 42. The point is it's one of the differences in these two passages and it's a difference in the way that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. The second difference is the one that we're going to really focus in on today and that's in both passages, it has the expression, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. However, they both don't have the line and the day of vengeance of our God. In fact, that line is missing from Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61. So did Jesus miss that by, by accident? Did he get a strange bit of stage fright as he was up there sharing and reading from this? Or was it something deeper and something more pointed and more intentional in his reading of Isaiah 61? Now, to be able to answer that question and therefore understand what Jesus was doing, we need to continue reading in Luke 4. And we pick it up immediately in the next verse, which is verse 20. And it says this, Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. You kind of feel the drama in this situation. This was no accidental omission of the part of the text from Jesus, as if he would do such a thing. This was something that was completely intentional. Jesus didn't leave the line out about God's vengeance out by accident. And he, he did it on purpose. And he didn't just leave it out, but he closed the book on the vengeance of God. It's such a profound moment, so much so that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed on Jesus. 
Uh, as he kind of closes the book and hands it back to the attendant, everyone is watching as he walks back to his seat and sits down. People are gobsmacked, amazed at what he's just done. So why has this grabbed everyone's attention so much? Why does it matter that he missed out a line? Why does it make a difference that he didn't include the bit about the vengeance of God? Surely it's a good thing that he it didn't include that and excluded that line. Potentially not if you were a Jew at that time. Because just imagine for yourselves how you felt when Harry Potter defeated Voldemort. Or the relief that you experienced when Frodo finally destroyed the ring. And when the impressive dictator that you read about in the news or you knew people that lived in a country of was finally overthrown. Or perhaps even closer to home when that bully maybe at school or in, in university in a workplace that's been picking on you for years was finally dealt with. Well imagine that, but that for thousands of years. Generation after generation being oppressed, killed and destroyed. Maybe enjoying the occasional victory, but then being used as slaves to build Pharaoh's kingdom. Or being run out of your land by your greatest enemy. That's the Jewish people. They weren't just waiting for a Messiah to come and save them. They were also longing for a Messiah to come and take revenge on their enemies against the people who had oppressed them, who had killed them and destroyed them. After all, the Jewish people are the good guys in this story. And the hero always comes to free the good guys and destroy the bad guys. So when Jesus leaves out the line about the hero, i.e. God, taking vengeance on the enemies who oppressed them for so long, you can start to see why the eye of everybody in that synagogue was on him. So what does Jesus do next, knowing what this has done to the people in the room? Well, we pick that up in verse 21. It says this, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus ups the drama again. Not only has he redefined the hero and what the hero's come to do, but he's also dared to say that he is that hero. And you can almost hear the comments whispered in this packed synagogue. Did he just do that? Surely not. Why would he leave that bit out? That's the best bit. Why would he end the story there? Doesn't he know that good always defeats evil? And wait a minute. Isn't this just Joseph's son? As it says in verse 22. It's quite possible that the crowd in this synagogue have been thinking some pretty horrendous things about Jesus as he pokes at their expectation about what God's going to come and do. Their, their, their pronouncement that this is just Joseph's son is effectively saying that this is just that child born out of wedlock or that, that bastard whose mum was alleged to have had an immaculate conception. But we all know that didn't really happen. The attitude of the people towards Jesus at this point in time is not one of amazement or awe or wonder. It's one of dismissiveness. That he's just had the audacity to rewrite one of Israel's, the Jewish people's favourite passages of scripture. And then they had the gall to say it's written about him. To say that Jesus antagonised this crowd is probably an understatement. So what does Jesus do next? He of course pokes the bear even more. And we pick it up in verse 23 and 20 to 27. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assured I say to you, no prophet is except in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zerapeth in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus goes on to show how God the hero isn't just coming to do good 
for them, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. But he's actually coming to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord for everyone, both those who are in and those who are out. He sticks the boot in by referring to Zarephath, the widow who Elijah helped in 1 Kings 17. Elijah not only raises her son from the dead, but also ensures that this non-Israelite, this non-Jew, has enough provision to last her through the famine. From a Jewish perspective, Elijah should have come to the people of Israel, raised their children from the dead and ensured that they had in more than enough. Jesus is showing here that God's favour isn't just for Israel or the Jewish people, but for all mankind. He's showing us how God deals with the world. Whilst we all sometimes find it hard to perhaps see other people blessed, and I get that, we all find that difficult at points and probably lying to ourselves if we convince ourselves we're not. But even in those moments, I imagine most of us wouldn't resent God blessing someone like the widow we've just talked about. Okay, she may not be one of us, but she hasn't done anything wrong. She's very poor and about to lose her only son. I mean, let's be honest, most of us are up for helping the poor and isolated non-Christians, aren't we? People that aren't one of us. But Jesus' next example is a little harder to take. Jesus says how Naaman the Syrian was the only leper cleansed by Elisha. Now Naaman is not a sweet little old widow with next to nothing in terms of earthly possessions. No, Naaman's pretty much the opposite of that. Here's a brief rundown of this Naaman character. Naaman is a commander of the Syrian army and the Syrians are enemies of the Jewish people. Naaman would have led armies to raid and kill the people of Israel. Naaman was wealthy, important and powerful. The Syrian king wanted Naaman to be healed because it was important to him, so made it happen. He was privileged. Naaman was entitled, he was rude, and he was arrogant. He didn't want to listen to Elijah and what he asked him to do um, because he thought he knew better. So you kind of get in this picture that Naaman is not the most likable guy. And we can all probably relate to people we know personally or perhaps we see in the public eye that we also don't like. But God healed him anyway. And that's outrageous because Jesus is telling his Jewish neighbours that not only isn't God going to avenge them and take vengeance on their enemies, he's actually going to heal their enemies. Now let that thought sink in for a moment. Imagine Voldemort, Thanos, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, that annoying neighbour or the nasty bully being healed and shown favour after all they've done. I think most of us would say that's not fair. It shouldn't be that way. That That's not okay. And we kind of see the reaction that perhaps we all might feel to some degree in the next verse, in verse 29. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, Jesus went his way. Do you blame them? I can certainly empathise with them. When I think of people who have done me harm or have seen do harm in the world and think they don't deserve to be treated well. They don't deserve to be healed. They don't deserve to be shown favour. I'd, li- I'd like to think I wouldn't be the one trying to push Jesus over the hill, trying to push God himself over a hill. But I do get where they're coming from. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably all understand how this is a difficult thing to take. But this is Jesus showing us how God deals with the bad guy. He's shown us how God deals with the world and he's shown us how God deals with the bad guy. This is Jesus showing us that the favour of God is for all humanity. And that sometimes is hard for us to stomach and hard for us to take. I know for me, I sometimes think 
I assume love my enemies would mean loving someone who has said something mean to me or perhaps the person that stole my bike or stole a possession. And it's almost like my thinking is a little bit primary school-like. Jesus' call for us to love our enemies and show how God loves his enemies is so earth-shattering because it includes everyone, even the most evil and heinous people and characters we can imagine. Does loving our enemies mean that we don't hold them to account? Of course it doesn't. There are consequences for actions and serious consequences for serious actions. There is a responsibility for all of us, including the most hated in society, to clean up our mess and somehow try and make amends like Zacchaeus did when he talked about it in Luke 19. But the way we go about administrating this is significant. Jesus is showing us how God deals with the good and the bad guy. Jesus is showing us how God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is showing how God is impartial, is indiscriminate in the way that he deals with people and therefore shows us how he deals with us as well. That Jesus is really showing us how God would bring an end to this dog-eat-dog, spiral of the fittest plague that's gripped our planet. Heaven's antidote of love your enemy is what stops the oppressed becoming the oppressor of those who once oppressed them. It stops that cycle because power cannot be used to deliver vengeance. Jesus shows us that true power is used to restore and reconcile and that the heart of God is to bring restoration and reconciliation to those in our world. Jesus is revealing a God who wants to reconcile with his enemies and in doing that enables us to do the same. Is this an easy thing? Not at all. But because we see Jesus, we have hope not only because he shows us the way, but because he walks it, it with us by his Holy Spirit. So as we walk through the comment sections on various social media platforms, can we leave a mark that heals instead of divides? When partisan politics grips our nations, can we be a bridge for reconciliation as opposed to hate? When faced with our enemies, both great and small, can we take them by the hand get in the dirt and help them clean up their mess this is not about people getting away and not taking responsibility for things this is about how we see god and therefore how we behave towards other people too now starting with a film reference i'm going to finish with a film reference and it's from star trek into darkness and it says this there will always be those who mean to do us harm to stop them we risk awakening the same evil within ourselves Our first instinct is to seek revenge when those we love are taken from us. But that's not who we are. When Christopher Pike first gave me his ship, he had me recite the captain's oath, words I didn't understand at the time. But now I see them as a call for us to remember who we once were and who we must be again. James T. Kirk. And who are we? We're sons and daughters of the king. We're ambassadors of heaven. We're followers of Jesus. And we have the opportunity that as Jesus reveals how God behaves towards the good guy, the bad guy and the world in general to start to mirror and imitate him in the way that we live our lives. Now I want to take today's prayer uh, from Ephesians 3 verse 14 because knowing his love is the only way we walk the Jesus way and love our enemies. And it says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts with faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please make sure you check out the blog and our future podcasts. Um, All the best. God bless. Have a great rest of your day.